Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 257 on the network. Uh, before we get going with, with Jim, and I've got a great topic for you guys today, just want to thank our subscribers, 40, close to 44,000 right now. Make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Let's give Jim a five-star after this and, and write some great comments for us to continue to battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like we do in baseball. 73 countries right now, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And I guarantee this show is going to do it for you. So uh, buckle your seatbelt, put your helmet on. we got some heavy stuff to, to throw at you today, pardon the pun. Uh, but Jim, welcome back to your show. Good to have you again. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. Yeah. So we, uh, as we go back and forth throughout the week, I, I always have to do heavy research on your topics because um, like all of our shows, but, but yours in particular, we have a very sophisticated audience, very smart audience. I want to make sure I can match their intellect as well and, and yours too. But to today we got a great topic. We talked about it a little bit, uh, actually a lot on the last show, but getting real, real deep with it today. But the, the, role, of variabil- the role of variability in motor learning and uh, kind of take us back to a little bit of last show and carry us into today, how, uh, how you decided upon this and where we want to go with it. Yes, the, uh, last week's show, we, we spoke about, um, you know, the, the importance of, of playing multi-sports, especially when you're young. Uh, we discussed how in many, um, many scenarios nowadays, it's not just baseball, it's the majority of the sports, of the major sports, is uh, the seasons overlap and then coaches say, well, you know, we're, if you want to play on our spring team, you need to play on our fall team. And you play on the fall team, and then well, now we have workouts. We have workouts in the winter. You got to come to the workouts, and players, young players, and and parents get stuck in this. Uh, they know the importance of playing multi sports. They've read about it. They've learned about it. They they understand the uh, difficulties in in uh, specialization at an early age, and whether it be overuse injuries or um, or um, lack of other competitive mental skills. Um, but they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So from there, uh, when we went into specifically travel baseball, um, the importance of position variability. So the guy plays a couple of innings at shortstop, a couple of innings at center field. You know, they move the players around the field at a young age, especially little league age of 8 to 12 years old. Move them around the field. Because if you've already put them in your program and you haven't allowed them to play all other sports because of your training schedules or because, you know, you want to have total control over them, uh, at least play them in different positions so they can acquire different motor skills and different variables from doing, you know, different physical movements and also the, the mental processes that go from doing, you know, different activities. Um, so then, excuse me. <clears throat> During my readings this week, I, I came across some research. It, it, you know, the way this happens sometimes with me is just I'm reading and I I see a reference or something and I look into it and sure enough, this one research uh, project popped up. And while even at the beginning, the researchers say that you know this is a work in progress, but we just we're trying to get to a, a point to truly understand. And uh, they called it um, variable, variable resistance. Now, it's not necessarily 
the original thought of variable resistance is, uh, you know, changing weight, like the old Nautilus machine, changing weight through, through the, through the movement curve or things like that. Um, you know, uh, the weight's the weakest at your, at your weakest point and the strongest, heaviest at your strongest points. And that was a thought process of variable resistance back in, uh, you know, probably late seventies, early eighties. Um, but I took it a step further. I combined my thoughts on this, uh, in two ways in kettlebell, in kettlebell training, they have a thing called offset training where you might have a 45 pound kettlebell in one hand and a 25 pound kettlebell in the other hand. And general logic would say, well, uh, you know, the one hand with the 45 is going to get stronger, but over time they found out that it doesn't happen that way, that the body adjusts to the different weights. And it actually is a, a positive in training, especially when, when uh, individuals reach certain training plateaus and are stuck, you know, at a particular weight or a particular movement. So I took that offset training um, thought process and uh, I looked at then what I called training variability. And I, sure enough, this research popped up and uh, I have the, a little bit of the conclusion here. And this is the thing that, that struck me. Um, as something to look into further. It says that while we know that noise in the nervous system function can often be detrimental for optimal performance, the studies we have reviewed here suggest that neural variability may also be conducive for motor learning. Random fluctuations or noise in the activity of neurons could plausibly underlie such motor exploration, but recent findings suggest that the nervous system is more deliberate and sophisticated than that and is actively regulating and shaper, shaping motor variability to augment learning. So what, what that says to me is that um, if we, obviously if we're playing multiple sports, this happens. If you're playing different positions, this happens. I, I'll, I'll use a term, Dave, that you used, the, um, I think, two episodes ago. When you, uh, you use the term chaos, and um, that's what struck me immediately. I could take the term noise and replace it with chaos. Um, well, we generally know that different training models or modules or protocols, we want to eliminate chaos. Uh, for example, in the, back in the heyday of the Soviet Union with the Olympic weightlifting, their training facilities would have uh, a black floor, white ceiling, white walls, no music, no distractions, no jewelry, no medals, nothing. And the person would do their set, get up, walk into the corner room and stare and meditate into the, uh, into the white corner to get ready to perform their next set. So to me, that's an example of we're removing all noise or all chaos that could in interfere uh, in that particular movement. Let's say if we're doing a squat or, or, a, or a power clean or clean jerk, whatever. But then when I read this research, I'm saying, hmm, 
if we add some of this chaos or some of this noise, some of this uh, variability to our, our training process, which again happens naturally when you play multiple sports because you're doing different types of activities uh, and the position variability. If we came up with a way to change these variables, to add chaos to the equation, what would that look like? So I realized in working with the young kids that um, I never was really a large component of all this uh, weighted ball training. Um, let's say they use these, uh, you know, weighted plyo balls. And, and uh, I'll relate you a story of one time I was going in to watch uh, Kyle Wright at Vanderbilt. And he had a dominating uh, sophomore year college at Vanderbilt. And um, I can remember that when I first saw him as a freshman, he threw from a, we could classify it as a low three-quarter arm slot, but it was more that his elbow, his elbow was in proper position at his shoulder, but his hand was way outside his elbow. And, um, you know, and we see a lot of guys that throw that way. But his sophomore year, he was a little bit more traditional three-quarters. He'd kind of brought that hand in just a little bit, and he dominated. And he was the consensus preseason first pick in the country going into his junior year at Vanderbilt. And uh, I saw him this sophomore year, and then I saw him in the fall, and he was outstanding. So during this time, um, Vanderbilt had adopted, they opened up their their science pitch lab, and they did a lot of really, really great things. Um, but they adopted a lot of the uh, training principles out of the Driveline Academy uh, out west, specifically the plow balls. So people during the season kept asking me, um, what it, when was I going to see Kyle Wright? And his junior year, Kyle Wright was struggling. He was struggling with control, struggling with command, things that did not occur the year before. So I said that I was going to wait on a little bit um, to see him getting fully into a season. So I we would elim I'd eliminate variables such like, uh, you know, he, he had a slow start to the season or all the other things that people would think. So I go to see him. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw him at the uh, University of Arkansas. The reason being is I knew that I could get above the bullpen by just sitting in the stands down left field above the visitor's bullpen and look down and watch exactly what he was doing from the first moment he walked into the bullpen. And the thing I noticed was that after his dynamic warm-up and his stretching and his running and, and all thing, he comes into the bullpen and he goes immediately to the, uh, the Jaeger tubing exercises, but he's doing them in a very dynamic, violent, quick fashion. And he's, he's really working up a sweat. He's going at it real hard. Um, and from there, he goes into the plow balls. And he basically, it appeared to me, was doing the exercises with the plow balls, throwing them against the wall, doing all different movements that, uh, that they recommend. And he was going at it like 100, 120%. I mean, he was firing the ball as, as hard as he could. So he was following that training protocol. So 
right then in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is a lot of noise. This is a lot of chaos going on here. And sure enough, he gets up to throw his bullpen. And the first thing I notice is that the arm slots all over the place. It's not consistent. And I'm thinking to myself, well, he just, not only did he go out with that warm up with the power balls, but I mean, it was violent. And, and then fatigue starts to set in. And one of the things that I've always advocated is that in all the training that we do, we're not really looking to introduce muscular failure into the, uh, into the equation because there's seven, seven or eight physical factors of, of or characteristics of muscular failure. And then there's four or five mental ones. And if the variations of what muscular failure could be in an individual, how are we going to pin it down and make it the focal point of our training philosophy? So that's a little sidebar, but a, hit, a, a scout that was with me was a hitter when he played pro ball. And he said, uh, Jim, do you, what do you think that does? What, what, you think that's what's affecting him? And I said, you know, I, I don't have the answer to that right yet, but I'll, I'll ask you a question. If you were standing in the uh, on deck circle and instead of having a, you know, pound or two pound weight on the end of your bat and you're swinging to get loose, suppose you put a, 20 pound weight on your bat and you proceeded to swing it as hard as you could a thousand times. Do you think that when you took that weight off the bat and stepped into the batter's box a few seconds later, that you'd have any feel for the barrel of your bat? He goes, no, no way. I said, so I'm starting to think that it's difficult for him to have any feel at his release point in a consistent arm slot because of the violence and the, uh, that he's doing this dynamic activity with the power balls and the muscular fatigue that sits in. So I don't think that's necessarily a positive. Well, then I start dealing with young kids and uh, I'm not going to put them on that type of training protocol. Uh, but I start thinking about the kettlebell offset training. I start thinking in my mind, about uh, training variability. This is even before I ran into this new research. And my logic says to me, well, every time I give this 12-year-old, uh, and, if, and if I'm dealing with, let's say, 8 to 12-year-olds, 9 to 12-year-olds, I'm only talking about uh, plow balls that range from about 7 ounces to 3 ounces. And we know that a baseball weighs five ounces. So I set up a training protocol where I put them through all types of throwing drills with these plow balls. And uh, very similar to a post I had this week about the uh, 85% uh, effort rule. Uh, I don't know if that post is actually based on science. Okay, I didn't research that part, but I do know. I knew at the time that it aligned with my thought process of how different things I've done with pitchers over time, especially trying to teach them new motor skills. So the thing that I started to notice with the young players is when you gave them that seven, seven ounce or six ounce ball, they immediately 
their body kind of self-corrected and slowed itself down and put itself in the proper place. So I thought that was quite interesting when I started. And then, especially in the young guys, when you give them the lighter ball, sometimes you see what their truth uh, throwing mechanic is because now you've given them the ball that they're strong enough at that age to, uh, to throw properly. Yeah. So I, you bring up the point every time it's the only sport that we don't modify the ball for, uh, you know, football does it, basketball does it, soccer does it, uh, for these kids to learn the throw properly. And I, and I, and I, I know we're talking pitching, but just for the hitters in the audience, your point about as you get that more mature athlete, you put the set, the heavier ball and they're able to self, they slow down a little bit. I found that as a hitter, when I felt a little out of sync, I would go to a heavier bat and that heavier bat would force me. It, it, it wasn't mental. It was more my body adjusting the heavier bat. It would slow my mechanics down and I would self-correct. Um, I would slow my, my lower half down to, to match my upper half. So yes. it's an interesting point. Exactly. And, you know, ba- basically I, I'm not having these, these young guys stand on a mound and throw these balls. Did I'm, they're they're throwing it into a, you know, into a net or a bounce back screen or whatever you want to call it, and um, and I, and I'm I'm isolating some of their hip movements. It's it's you know it's basically standard type of throwing drills that you know you can pick up on, but uh, I start to see, especially when I break the drills down some of them that they're placed in the proper throwing position, you know, elbow to the shoulder, hand over the elbow, front side direction. When we go back to our, you know, direction, balance and matching uh, uh, words that the body starts now to adapt because if you give them a seven ounce ball and they throw it three to five times, we're using a, you know, we're focusing on a target, but it's not like we're really worried about where the ball's going, but we give them something to focus on. And next thing you know, the body self-corrects and adjusts to the different resistance, the different weights of the ball, and they get to a pretty good release point doing the drill. So after witnessing that, I'm then thinking to myself, well, if the body is self-correcting and self-adjusting to try to replicate their release point, and they're going in about 70, 80% effort because that we want things to be under control because we're, we're attempting to, to learn a new movement pattern, a new motor skill. And if we just threw, you know, if I, let's say we worked with four different four different plow balls, you know, seven, six, four, and three. And we throw each of them three to four times, three to five times. So we're looking at 12 to, 12 to 20 repetitions, if you would say. Well, if I give them a five ounce ball and now I say, okay, let's do the same drill. Well, my common sense says to me that I'm going to be I'm going to be more consistent because the weight on the weight of the ball I'm cha- uh, throwing isn't changing. 
So now I've learned where my release point is. I'm become consistent with it. And now you're only asking me to do it with a five ounce ball. That's, that's easier. And without even telling the young player, any of this, it happens. So that's where I started. Um, if you would like to say in, in your terms, that's where all of a sudden I've introduced chaos noise. All right. The, as the research article told it into the process of learning the new motor skills and the new movement patterns. Um, I think one in our audience, I know the heavy balls or the plyo balls are prevalent now out there and they're, they're, they're dangerous for, for a couple of reasons. And as you're describing it, I hope audience is picking up when you are working with the kids with that you're monitoring them, you're coaching them. In a lot of these cases where you're watching these guys, even pro guys in the, in the bullpens, they're down there being unmonitored. And all you do is hear the wailing off the wall to know that somebody's warming up down there. So audience understand that, you know, the way Jim's described, he's monitoring these kids. He's over. And that's a huge difference in terms of just turning your kid loose with plyo balls and, and the chaos. I, I like, I'm, I'm a big fan of it um, with one caveat that I like to make sure that, you know, they, in a controlled environment that, that they're sound fundamentally in whatever we're doing. And then once they are, my phrase is, here's another phrase. So I like, and I don't mean this in a physical way, but I like to train on the other side of pain where that doesn't mean hurt yourself. It means the, uh, the uncomfortable uh, nature that chaos provides that phrase, Hey, let's be comfortable being uncomfortable. So, um, I, I, I like how you're describing this. I, I think it's, it's important for our audience to, to continue to follow and catch up with the notes. Cause this, this is, this is some good stuff. Yeah. Now that was a very good point during this entire process of, of dealing with the, the plyo balls. Um, we're looking at, we're looking at 70 to 80% effort. We're looking at things being under control. We're having the uh, individual feel and be part of the process. Um, each individual's specific cues to get them in the, in the right feel is uh, solely individually based. Um, some guys, we could have them just focus on getting their center of gravity, their belly button past their front hip as fast as they can, can let the arm go for a ride while we're doing these drills and they start to feel it. Um, but the key is that we're not using these balls to, or the variable resistance. We're not using it as a muscular endurance test, as a muscle failure test. We're not strength and conditioning with these. No, no, this is specifically for learning the proper movement patterns and motor skills to throw the baseball properly. Um, that's a completely different thing. Um, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like a silly analogy, but if you were, if you were working on your penmanship on your, your, um, your writing, right. Writing in script. Right. And I gave you a 20 pound pencil, you, your fine motor skills would be wouldn't be very, very good in, you know, signing your own name. But if I give you a regular pencil, that's not, you know, not even an ounce, two ounces, you learn to sign your name. So I'm not giving you 
a seven ounce ball or or for the older guys eight or nine or ten ounce ball to see how hard you can throw it to see how um how many times you can throw it to see how you can you know how many times you can throw it in three minutes i'm not doing any of that we're specifically adding variable resistance to the different movement patterns and allowing the body to self-adjust and self-correct. Um, that's the thing. And I know, and I know the, the self-correct portion of it, um, you know, th- there's, <clears throat> there's still some controversy in, you know, both sides of the table in, in the research on why, when you give a player a baseball that's a couple ounces heavier or a plyo ball a couple ounces heavier than five ounces, why does all of a sudden the body start to put itself in a better position? And, you know, I'll leave that to everybody, all the researchers and scientists to just to argue. Um, the thing that I've always kept in mind, even when I had the, uh, with the personal training uh, business down in uh, New York City, is that in order to do research, that research has to go a minimum of 15 years. Most of it in the medical field and exercise fields, more geared toward 25 years. Um, But we're living in a real world that's ever adapting and changing. And if you pay attention, you, you can see what works and doesn't work. Um, hopefully then as all the new research comes out and a new thoughts come out on how to do things, it's a confirmation of what you've already been doing. Um, now that in the real world changes a little bit, because if you're dealing in training facilities and different things where, um, Clients are coming to you with, you know, insurance and physical therapy and stuff like that. Well, then insurance companies get involved with the training protocols and say what you can do and can't do. You know, I'm going beyond that. I'm just saying that if in 1987, when I started coaching Division One b- baseball and stressed to the pitchers at that time the, the importance of hip mobility and your hips have to work properly, um, that probably came to me from my own experiences. That probably came to me from um, reading all about Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan and different things like that. Came to me when I uh, looked at the um, uh, the way a, a player of smaller stature like Ron Guidry trained his lower half and how at the time the Yankees used to say that pound for pound he might have been the strongest guy on the team. There was different different things that I learned and experienced that got me to a point where I said, you know what, you got to have your hips work the proper way, the importance of hip mobility. And then probably, I don't know the exact time, but 10, 15 years later, all the research comes out. And now everybody wants to talk about hip, hip and shoulder separation and the importance of hip mobility. And if your hips don't work, you're going to have Tommy John. And this is all the stuff that, you know, comes out afterwards. But the people that have been in the trenches and doing this stuff, you know, you, you already know. Um, it brings me to a story where with the brewers, we used to do high-speed photography 
uh, our team doctor had a uh, quite a setup up in Milwaukee. Um, they figured a way how to make it portable way before the technology to have things portable. We would set it up in spring training and instructional ball, and we would high-speed video on all our pitchers. The problem at the time, since we, we, we were new to this process, was that um, when they'd send all the video and the results to the engineers who would break it all down, first couple of years, the turnaround was a couple of months. Now, the turnaround when you do things like that, because technology's improved and they understood what the importance of getting the uh, information back sooner, you know, it's almost immediate, the, the turnaround. So the craziest part um, is that many years later, we're, you know, we're looking at all this and what the, what the engineers and the analysts would break down is they would break down from the video, the uh, breakdown from the video, um, the the variability, the stress levels in the in the shoulder and the elbow in the different players, and if they fall outside of the average, they would give a percentage of where that individual could possibly get hurt down the road. Um, The assistant general manager, Gord Ash, asked me, you know, unless we improve this turnaround, unless we improve this turnaround, it's going to be difficult to to really use this and apply it. Um, And it it does cost, you know, a lot of money. What what are your thoughts on it? And I said at the time, I think it's pretty good because it confirms what I've been, what I see. Isn't that that how we should? Hold for a second. Oh yeah. But as as Jim's talking, I, I I to our audience, I'm I'm thinking that the that's the way we should use analytics nowadays. That's the way we should use these devices: spin rate, spin access, exit velocity. Um, and and to, to to your point, Jim, they they should be used to one of two things to validate that, Hey, it looks like we're on the right path or to start conversations in the beginning so we can determine the right path. But my, my concern with all this as is yours is that they, uh, they're used to basically dictate the path and we've got it all backwards right now. So what, what you're bringing to the table here is, is a, is a great point for our audience to pay attention to. Cause number one, it's, it's addressing the training that's prevalent out there at the moment. And it's also addressing the technology and the analytics that are dictating a lot of what our grassroots players are using to develop their games. And, and at the end of the, the rainbow here, as they grow up the, the line to high school players, college players, pro players, these kids are learning a whole different language. And I'm concerned that we're going to need a drastic paradigm shift to, to help them find true north. And, and, and Jim, you can, you know, as, as you, you come back in, correct me if I'm wrong. When we abandon um, our natural feel, as you, as you mentioned with Jarrett, right? You felt like when he was using that heavy ball, it was. I think you were getting to the point that he was kind of losing his feel for his release. Um, you know, what what are what kind of thoughts do you have in regards to that? Any of those? You could unpack all that stuff in in whatever way you want. The the analytics um, and the technology are either dictating the path, or, or I'm not just dictating that they're 
they're the path right now and, and we need to find our way back to feel. And I think Jim, Jim may have dropped for a second, but I, I'll, uh, I'll carry on with, with some of his, his information. As we talked earlier, we, t- we talked a lot about uh, last week and feeding into this week, uh, a lot about understanding and developing a child um, in a number of different ways, not just typecasting them into your right fielder, your second baseman, your shortstop, your catcher. Whether your kid's the right fielder or your kid's the shortstop, kind of bringing, bringing us back to, to uh, what, what Jim was talking about, none of that is good. Even though he may feel like the greatest nine-year-old player of all time, if he's playing shortstop every day or catcher every day, he's not learning the motor skills, the total motor skills necessary to maximize his baseball. It may feel good now, but it's, it's certainly not going to help him or her in the long run uh, with, with uh, sports. And we also talk about the importance of multiple sports. And you know that, that provides the body with the ability to move in different ways to perform these high-level functions as we, we get up the line uh, with, with our sports, whether it's baseball, basketball, football. And again, we get the times have changed where kids are being, I don't want to say pressured, but families are being made to believe that if they don't specialize, that they're going to miss out. And that fear of missing out is something that our message to the parents, you know, we talked a lot of, a lot of science, a lot of research, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of practical uses of baseball today, but getting back to the parents, um, I know Jim's a great communicator with his parents that he's working with. Parents have to be first educator of their kids and they have to start researching uh, this stuff and understanding that very little that happens at the ball field in terms of players of the game, rings one, three for four, has any bearing on future success for that individual. Other than the fact, if they're doing things the right way, sometimes uh, at the expense of the result, you'd rather have them perform the function, um, take a look at, you know, you know, as we talk about positions. Let a kid have opportunities to, to play the infield. So that way they may make mistakes. It may, you may lose a game, but over the long haul, you're going to create more better players in your system than if you typecast them from eight, you know, eight years old all the way up to 18. It's, a, it's not doing the team any good. It's not doing the, uh, the uh, individual player any good. So I'm, I'm going to challenge parents today. Number one, you know, don't accept what we say as, as gospel. Do your own research on us too. poke holes in it. See what works for you. Not everything we say is going to be working for you. However, um, do the same as it pertains to your child. And I know it's, it's tough because we are afraid that whoever's in charge, it's going to, there's going to be backlash, uh, if they don't play, you know, 11 months out of the year, don't go to the training sessions every day, or if they're with us program and they say, well, in order to play catcher here, you got to pay for extra sessions. Um, research the people that are teaching your kids, research the methods that they're teaching your kids. And in all honesty, you know, Jim, Jim can speak to this as well. And any of our hosts on the show, we get asked all the time, who, who was your hitting coach growing up? Who was your pitching coach? Who was your shooting coach? If it's, you know, basketball, who was your quarterback coached? And our kids are so overcoached now and undertaught it's, it's hurting them individually and hurting the game whatever they're playing. So I challenge the parents, number one, to research us, but number two, research the people that are involved with your kids and sit down with them and and create your own way of doing things. Every kid has their own learning strategy. 
Every kid has their own socialization strategy. And it's important to tap into that. And that's a, that's a great first question when somebody says that, you know, they want to be your child's hitting coach or pitching coach. Mechanics are important, very important. Um, but as they progress, they should be working on approach. Um, you know, as we talk in hitting, what's your approach at the plate? As we talk in pitting, what's your pitching, what's your approach to the batter? And, and working mechanics uh, maybe before and after. And then as Jim says, get your brain out of the way and let's, let's see what your body does uh, naturally due to the training. Because we, we all fall, you know, we, we don't raise to the level of our expectations. We all will fall to the level of our training. So we have to allow that to happen in order to assess. But the constant, you know, on mechanics, on mechanics, on mechanics. I ask kids all the time when they go to hitting lessons, what did you work on? Mechanics the whole time. And uh, I kind of I kind of laugh, you know, half joking, half not. And say, do you not know how to swing a bat? Um, you know, it's and these kids get so uh, they there's a bunch of cookie cutter approaches. And that's the problem. The kids never figure out who they are. They never develop a feel for uh, what they can do naturally, and they never go through their own path of learning, um, whether it's hitting or throwing. And what transpires in the end is what we all strive for as coaches. We strive for as coaches and parents. We want to make ourselves obsolete. We want at some point in time for our kids, uh, whether it's in life or in sports, that they're out there and they can self-correct, they can self-teach. And we, um, our methodology right now of developing that is is surely flawed because uh, we're, we're not creating kids that have a feel. We're not creating kids that, and I'm not saying we, Jim and I, but the, the environment out there with teaching. And that's, that's what I hope you're getting today from, from this podcast and all of Jim's podcasts that, you know, he's, he's providing you with the information. He's providing you with the research, challenging to do your own and kind of helping you set a course for your personal situation and cautioning you on not eliminating, but cautioning on here's how you should approach all the technology out there and the input and uh, the analytics. It shouldn't be your path. It should be maybe a validation at the end, maybe a conversation starter at the beginning, and then you have to have your own path there. And sorry, to, sorry to go on a soapbox here, Jim, but your uh, your information's been phenomenal today, and I kind of sorting it out. I'm I'm sorting it out for my dual my multiple roles here. I'm a dad. I'm a former player, a former coach, and obviously a co-host here with you. So I was trying to help him sort out all that great information here. No, very good. Very good. Thank you. It, it, you know, David, it brings me one, one point you said, it, it uh, reminded me of something immediately. A couple of years ago, they, they took a poll of athletic trainers in uh, junior hockey in Canada. Um, I, I'm not totally up on the exact ages that play junior hockey, but I'm thinking that it's, you know, teenagers so 13 to 18 maybe um, and in the poll one of the one of the biggest things that these uh, athletic trainers strength coaches you know conditioning guys spoke about was that um, 40 to 50 percent of a lot of the kids when they first come to them can't run backwards can't do a shuffle correct can't do a karaoke run correct um, and when you think about it, um, that's pretty tough because these guys are on skates. They're powerful. They've got strong legs, the whole thing. But the actual movement pattern of doing something that they might not necessarily do on skates uh, was completely lost. And, and they had to work on it, you know, as far as their overall athleticism. 
uh, on a daily basis uh, at where I do most of my training. Uh, it doesn't matter what the sport, you run into the same thing. You, you take a bunch of 10-year-olds and you, and you go, all right, we're going to run backwards half the field. We're going to karaoke the other half. And it's just the whole entire process. Um, when you go back to these plow balls, some of the movements that I do with them is to free up the hips and free up the hand in the, in the throwing um, in the throwing action. And you demonstrate to them. I demonstrate for them. And a simple move, maneuver like you're from the stretch and have your front, your back foot cross over to the front and then into a shuffle, into a curl hop, and then get out front and throw the ball. And some kids, 10, 11, 12 years old, it's, um, and they're pretty good baseball players. And it takes them four or five takes before sometimes they're always taking and crossing over to the back. Sometimes it, it, it just, it's it in a way it's mind-boggling because what you're seeing is that these baseball players are becoming um highly skilled in baseball with baseball skills at a young age but their movement patterns and their athleticism and the ability to to acquire and adapt and adjust motor skills is very, very low. Uh, and that for me comes from not having the proper foundation of all the things we've spoke about today. Um, the, the thing about this is the, the j- just take the multi-sport. If a child plays multiple sports when they're younger, it answers a lot of the things that we're talking about. We don't really have to worry that much then about position variability. We don't really have to worry about when they're nine or 10 years old, uh, variable resistance or training variabilities, uh, you know, to create some noise. Uh, so the nerves adapts to it. That's already been accomplished when they were younger, when, uh, when they were playing multiple sports. Um, and again, Today's society, there's very few places left where, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it's, it was New York, but Saturday morning you'd get out of the house and you wouldn't come back till 10 o'clock at night or you'd come back for dinner and, 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 and beg your parents if you can go back out and you were out, you, you know, your parents weren't with you. You weren't in a structured environment. You were just doing your thing and having fun. Now, because of all the craziness in this world and, you know, many, many places, many neighborhoods, you're not necessarily going to what, you know, let your five-year-old go out and play in the park by himself. And that has then created even more of a need to play multi-sports. More of a need that if you're not playing multi-sports for position variability and more of a need for different training protocols to adapt to the environment or the type of athletes or players that are now coming into your system because they've lacked some of this other stuff, you know, in their early childhood. And that's how it's all interrelated. Um, 
I think I related this story a while back, but um, I'm in double A after the game, having a conversation with the manager, Don Money, who played at least 18 years in the big leagues for the Phillies and the Brewers. And uh, the conversation was on all the strength training and conditioning. And I said, you know, Don, we, we live in a world where in your day, you guys didn't make enough money off of baseball. So you went home and in your case, I know you worked on your dad's farm in Delaware, manual labor. But in this world now, we, uh, we pay um, coaches or strength coaches and all to get us in shape and have us perform properly on the baseball field, let's say. But when you go into these training facilities, these uh, strength coaches and, and uh, instructors, you start to see the movements they're doing and, and turning over tire, tires, uh, you know, all the, a lot of stuff that you see in these CrossFit competitions with the ropes up and down. And they're trying to recreate manual labor. You know, they're doing the right thing. That's the way the person should train. But in your day, Don, you got paid to do your manual labor. Now we're paying somebody else. But it's the same reasoning of the things we've discussed today. Things were lacking before you meet the player or the athlete. And that's why you have to adapt and start talking about these things and the importance of these things because they're not being supplied to the young ball player at an early age. And that goes back to last week about, uh, and two weeks ago about, uh, you know, being placed in a performance orientated environment at a too young age, bad motor skills are created. Uh, there's no, we don't play multi-sports. We don't have position variability. Next thing you know, we have a limited motor skill set a foundation in which to grow on. Um, we get to be 12, 13 years old, you go work with a guy like me. I ask you to do a karaoke or do a crossover front, um, back foot drive leg and you're pitching motion across the front and then into a shuffle takes five or six takes to even get the movement down, let alone move at a, 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 a pretty decent speed. These things are all happening because of everything that was missed at the beginning. And and that's the problem we're facing right now. Now, not to kind of take us off in a, another direction, but kind of, I think it's a derivative of this, you know, kids are on video games nowadays a ton and it, this virtual reality has become a part of, you know, sports. I know there's, there's uh, you know, there's a, there's a company now that's pretty dominant with using virtual reality to, I guess, mimic motor skills. Do you have any experience with that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I toyed with it a little bit. I and again, it's 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 all personal. I mean, everyone's got to go to their own their own likes and dislikes. But what are your thoughts on that? With research? can virtual reality help with with any of this? Uh, you know, well, very- I, I think um, I think eventually, like everything else, when it's when it's perfected and adapted to be applied to certain situations, yes. Um, I have not at this time. Uh, I know there's the, the one company that, you know, you put the virtual reality headset on and, and now you're facing big league pitchers and you're taking um, 
you know, your dry swings, but I guess a component of the technology on your bat. And then we're, you're seeing whether you hit the ball or how far you hit it and stuff like that. Um, I think there's positives in that as far as being a, a, a training module, but like anything else, if we become uh, over dependent upon just doing that, we're missing out on all the other things that, that we need to do. You know, that See, that goes back to my, uh, my analogy of that if you're a professional, you bring the toolbox to the job and you start using the proper tool for that uh, uh, individual or that task at hand. And what happens in our society nowadays is that we, uh, we do long toss. This is the way we do long, long toss. And now we're long tossing just like everybody else is long tossing instead of long tossing for you, the individual, it's best for you. But it's the long toss that's the answer, right? Or it's the plyo balls or the weighted balls or it's the driveline academy. Um, that's the answer. Um, you know, this next point gets us way back to when we talked about flow. The, the craziest thing that happens um, is that we're always looking for answers outside ourselves, right? Whether it's a new training protocol, uh, a new coach, a new teacher, uh, a new theory, a new way of doing something, right? And that becomes our crutch. So, like in the minor leagues, one of the things that, that I would notice over time is that um, we had phenomenal nutritionists and we were improving the pregame meals and the aftergame meals and all the different things. Even on the minor league level, organizations were spending a tremendous amount of money to make sure that this got done properly. Um, but next thing you know, a guy doesn't perform well in the game, has a rough outing, and it's because um, his pregame meal wasn't correct. There's always a crutch. Uh, well, I lost the strike zone because uh, my delivery, like the delivery's the third person in the conversation or the delivery wasn't doing what I was telling it to do. I mean, everything's a crutch. Uh, well, the workout facility, we were on the road and the workout facility wasn't what I'm used to and I couldn't do my so-and-so training protocol. Another crutch. All these, things are po all these things are positive things to help an individual improve, but they become negative things when they become what I call a crutch. They become the reason why we performed or the reason why we didn't perform and has nothing to do with that all of the training protocols all of the everything that's what helps you improve when done properly no, i think it's a great point that's these these mechanisms and and sal says it well in his show too people are looking to supplement work when, if you want to be a good pitcher, get on the mound and work on your craft. If you want to be a good hitter, get in the batter's box and work on your craft. That's how you become stronger, smarter, 
And there's all these hacks right now, and I'm not calling the people teaching hacks, I'm calling the methodologies hacks to try to shortcut things. And without the proper foundation, and I think this this is a point you made well this this show, without the proper foundation, none of that stuff works. And these parents are putting these eight, nine-year-olds in situations now where they're jumping right into the hacks right away. And the people teaching them sometimes never played, sometimes never coached, sometimes they're looking to make a buck. They're preying on this stuff and putting it out in front of these these families and they've got to get smarter they've got to start uh questioning even us i don't shoot that's i always challenge our audience question us don't accept what we say as gospel do your own homework make your own decisions but yeah i couldn't agree more and and i've I've tried the virtual reality stuff too that's just not my thing um i could see it like i like it for tracking but i can go out and track a regular pitcher for the same thing if you're in a cold weather state, I think maybe you can get a lot of reps. It's just, I just, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm always, I'm always leery of the shortcut. I'd, I'd much rather spend the extra time and, and do it the long way, the hard way. I guess that's the stubborn Italian in me. Well, here, here's an example, Dave. This, this was, uh, very well, um, discussed, I believe in one of Kevin Kernan's, uh, baseball articles, um, online, uh, ball nine. And uh, the discussion was about, um, like, a lot of teams aren't even taking batting practice on the field. Yeah. It's always in the cage. And it's always against a pitching machine that's cranked up to 100 miles an hour because, they're, you know, they want to, you know, if I can hit that, I guess I can hit everything else. But, I mean, we all know that's not true. When you go back to any of the guys that, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers, they talk about, you know, pitching is about disrupting a hitter's timing. So a hitter goes, you know, under the tunnel in Yankee Stadium, they crank up the pitching machine to 100 miles an hour, and he takes his eight, nine, ten cuts, and now he's ready. And then he goes, you know, sits on the bench, gets ready for his next at bat. But, um, you know, the next at bat, there's there's curveballs, there's changeups. The pitcher... If it's a good good pitcher is attempting to uh, break up your rhythm, um, and just sitting off a pitching machine all the time at 100 miles an hour isn't going to help you, you know, in any of things. So here's the thing: that the the cage, the pitching machine, the ability to, for to go 100 miles an hour, those are all positive things. But if that's all we're doing, how are we going to how are we going to improve in the other areas? That's the difficulty that I get, um, especially for the young players with all the modern technology and the things that are there to help them, but they become a crutch or the only thing that they do. Um, you know, I, 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 I have this little thing where I do with my guys and when they first meet me and I ask them, what do all real good baseball players have in common? while I'm shaking their hand and, you know, they say, uh, they're having fun or, you know, yeah. so those are all good things. All really good baseball players at every level have strong hands and give them a nice firm hand, handshake. And I go, you know how you get strong hands when you're, uh, watching a movie at home with your mom and dad, you put the bag of popcorn down for a while and I just start squeezing my hands. And I said, you know, you don't need any fancy equipment. You don't need any of that. Just keep making a fist, squeezing tight, letting go, squeezing tight, letting go. Because 
remember now we're talking a majority of these guys are you know under 14 years old right? and and even for some high school guys it's beneficial and then I say, and then when your mom and dad sees you're dedicated and you're squeezing your hands and you're getting stronger hands, then uh, they'll go out and buy you, a, you know, a rubber ball or something that you can squeeze. Right? Probably, you know, a dollar, dollar fifty, whatever it is, you know, at the at the local store. And then when they see you're really getting dedicated, then they maybe get you some of those hand grippers, right? And then that's how you progress and how you get better. But what happens is we. Two things happen. We immediately jump right to the hand gripper or the most uh, technologically advanced way to get our grip strength stronger. And we invest all this money and it either then, you know, is like the treadmill in the office that just is, you know, in the bedroom that's just collecting clothes. It just sits there. Or what we see nowadays, it becomes a crutch. I didn't have my uh, hand grippers or whatever using. I wasn't able to do my exercise because I had too much homework yesterday. I wasn't, right? And it takes everything away from um, actually going out and having fun and playing the game. Uh, A thing that relates to that is, so last night I'm working with a young man. He's uh, 13 years old. He's a great kid. And... He's got some natural abilities. He came to me initially for, for, um, you want to learn how to pitch. Lanky, underdeveloped, tall, slender kid, you know, needs to grow into his length. Naturally gets stronger as he matures. Um, So we did the pitching and stuff and he was having some success. He was feeling good. And then he asked me if I could work, you know, on his hitting because he hadn't been hitting much. And this summer, I mean, the kid has applied himself on the hitting side. He's relaxed. He enjoys it. He doesn't think about it. Uh, he's got his swing down pat, you know, all the technology from blast motion to whatever, all the numbers say how much he's improving and everything. It confirms everything. He's now getting invited to, you know, the different things in Florida and stuff. He came back last week. He hit three home runs and, and he's just ecstatic. But, Pitching wise, he's now in this this mode. He says, uh, "Listen, when school starts, do you have that seven day uh, workout schedule for me?" Yes, I already emailed it to your dad. You're all set. Okay, but I have to. And he gets so lost in what he's supposed to be doing next Tuesday that he starts to lose focus, even when he's with me on what we're supposed to just do right now. Focus on the next pitch. And he's a great kid and he keeps getting better, but you can see how all the different training modalities, the different training protocols, the different things that he's an intelligent kid and wants to learn about them in themselves, forget about the technology and all the numbers, continually keep him in this thinking mode. And he's always worried about what's next instead of just getting back to where he was at the beginning on the pitching side and just focus on the next pitch. And that's why, you know, even our conversation today, a lot of our conversation today um, is designed to be helpful for parents so that they start to understand some of the things that are beneficial for their child. Um, 
It wasn't necessarily meant to throw more into the minds of young players and have them think too much about all this other stuff. But that's where we usually end up, whether it's the technology, whether it's the different programs, whether it's this, whether it's that, um, you know, because you'll end up getting a player where he gets consumed, self-consumed with this uh, at too young an age. So he doesn't really have the emotional maturity to, to adapt and adjust and realize that there's going to be ups and downs and pitfalls. And uh, so this week, you know, this week maybe his dad has enough money, so he's going to the going to the uh, to the ranch in Texas and working with those people, and which is all beneficial. There's nothing wrong with that. But then he comes back, and he gets back into his old routine, and he doesn't like what his progress is. So then the next time the dad sends them to the driveline academy out west, which again in itself isn't bad, but then he comes back and he gets into his old routine. So he's just like changing training methods or training modalities or training protocols. And, and, you know, it's like he's, you know, what they say, you know, everything that he's learning or everything he's doing goes out with the, with the dishwater because he's already moving on to the next thing that he thinks is going to make him better instead of realizing he's going to get better by just focusing on the next task at hand, focusing on the next pitch and starting to learn to be part of the process. And instead of thinking that all the answers are coming from his external environment and somebody else is going to help him or somebody else has the answers or somebody else. And that's, that's some of the problems that we're facing because, and I always get back to this when they first started playing They weren't just allowed to be themselves and learn to play the game their way and learn how their body moves and how their mind works and how they adjust and how they compete. They're placed in a structured environment and overcoached, overinstructed. They never get into the flow naturally. They never learn about their own feelings and thoughts and emotions and how to deal with certain situations. They're, we're, we're, not that we're training robots, but we're, we're, we're falling prey to everybody that says, do it my way. Here's how we do it. All right. And just like last week's show that dates back to over 30 years ago now, when youth development baseball was just handed over because nobody else wanted to take charge of it to, you know, private enterprise. And now we're in a situation where the private enterprise is looking to make money. And all those things that we encounter are a byproduct of that. Yeah. I think that the key word is self-reliance. These, these, uh, we're creating a generation that lacks self-reliance. They, they don't trust themselves. They haven't been trained to do that. And it's a great, great essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson. If someone wants to read it, um, it's a great skill and tool to teach your, your child out there just as important as hitting and, and, and pitching. So, but, um, well, great, great show today, Jim. I, uh, I mean, it was a deep dive, uh, definitely into, you know, the role of variability. We discussed it last week as it pertains to positions. We got more into training today and what do you want to leave the audience with? I know it was a great cap off there. Is anything else you want to leave the audience with to kind of tease them into next week? Um, 
Well, not necessarily a tease, but I just want to uh, refer back to one thing. Um, during the week, I, I usually make some Facebook posts or, or every now and then I add on up to the blog on my website. But um, sometimes it would be good if the, if the audience has the ability to do it, you know, to check out some of the things that I put online and all because they might be uh, – uh, let's say I come across something on a Tuesday and it and it fits into what we're doing and it might be the lead into what we're doing. And this way they might have a little bit of a visual to work with besides just, you know, listening to, you know, the, the two of us for an hour, an hour and a half. But the one point um, when I, I, I made the post about 85% effort, the one thing I want to stress about that is, um, is, that's where you're learning how to be the part of the process and how to feel what you're doing. It's difficult to feel what we're doing. Um, you know, when, when the adrenaline kicks in and we're in that, uh, you know, clear fight, uh, process that we're in. So that's why with the brewers and I learned this from, uh, the big league pitcher coach, Mike Maddox, um, we intentionally told, our pitchers in their bullpens, throwing sessions, to work at 80% effort level. That is merely just a word, 80% effort level. Uh, we didn't have uh, the, the modus sleeve or now it's called pulse. We didn't have ways to right there measure what their workload was and any of that. We could just say, we're going to throw 45 pitches today. We're going to work on this today. We're going to work on that today. Remember, work at 80% effort and they start to learn and adapt and make adjustments to what they feel is 80% effort. And the basis of that was, you know, goes back to, and then in the game when the adrenaline's pumping and, you know, 50,000 fans are screaming and yelling and the whole thing, then, you know, you're going to be at hundred percent. But if we continually to try to learn new motor skills and make adjustments and adapt and, work with arm actions and work with our hip mobility and do the things that go on in our training uh, protocols. And we're trying to do them at a hundred, 120% effort. We're never really going to develop that feel of making adjustments and being part of the process. It's going to be just like this all, all out effort, you know, power move. Um, so the post that I made and, and the things that we talk about, about 85% effort or 80% effort, always remember those are simply words that you're using to attempt to trigger in that athlete what he feels. All right. If you said to the athlete, all right, I got the radar gun here today. Our goal is to throw 95 or higher. We're going to count how many times you throw 95. A lot of them, and you see it all online uh, with all the celebration and everything, they're never really going to be in the process of feeling what they're doing and understanding what they're doing and how they get there. It just becomes completely performance-based. And even if they did something that might hurt them down the road, well, I hit 96 today. Um, so that's why when we say throw at 80%, it gets them back within their body of feeling what they're doing. Because in their mind, they're like, okay, I don't want to throw. I don't want to go over 80%, right? And then we get into the area where we can continually work on improving, adjusting, or or creating new motor skills.
I like it. I think we gave our audience a ton today and we have a very, again, I love our audience, very sophisticated. They like smart and they, they soak this stuff up and you delivered today with it. Um, how can we, how can our audience find you, support you, give them your social media account and, um, and how can they reach out to you if they need to, especially for, for instruction? Yep. There's always um, the Facebook page at Rooney Baseball, R-O-O-N-E-Y. Uh, my website is the same, www.rooneybaseball.com. Uh, and then even whether it's through the website, you can send me an email or just regular email, Jim at rooneybaseball.com. Um, and, and even, you know, a, a, quite a few uh, listeners have just made comments on, on the, on the Rooney baseball Facebook page when maybe I post an article or I start a discussion or I show some video and they might, you know, post a question or two or post their agreement or something like that. So even, even a simple back and forth like that, you know, whatever anyone's comfortable with, but uh, yes, I'm, I'm here when uh, just trying to get the message out and just try to help as many people as possible. I would encourage people to reach out and follow Jim. Invaluable resource. Uh, your area is lucky to have you with all the experiences you've had in the game and continue to grow in the game. Um, it would be it would be foolish for them not to. So 43,000 plus, uh, make sure you, you take him up on that. Follow him on social media, comment. He'll get you back. And as you see from the podcast, I mean, we'll, we'll attack any any subject area. We're not afraid of three-syllable words, right, Jim? We'll go after. We're both educated. We can handle that stuff. But uh, with our audience, again, thanks so much for, for supporting us. Uh, this episode 257, Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. I'm Dave D'Agostino, your producer. We appreciate your support. All 73 countries, we're giving you some music, too, to, to satisfy our country following. So with that, we'll see everybody next week. Jim, thanks so much for a great job today. Thanks, Dave. Talk to you all next week.